history. And Babylon in prophecy provides a picture of God's view of our world. And like I said, Babylon is not just a geographical place, but it's a state of mind. And in the closing chapters of Jeremiah, the prophet's going to describe the destruction of Babylon and the deliverance of Israel. And so it will always be. The world will be judged. The people of the covenant will be delivered. So what's the source of Babylon's ruin? God himself. What are the sins of Babylon? In brief, she plundered and oppressed God's people in chapter 50, verse 11. She's defiled God's temple in chapter 51, verse 51. She's proud in chapter 50, verse 32. She's totally absorbed by idolatry, chapter 51, verses 7 through 8. How severe is the judgment? Her walls are leveled. Her gates are burned. Her wise men become fools. Her young men and warriors are killed. The cries and the groans of the wounded are heard throughout the whole land. Her homeland becomes a wasteland. In chapter 51, verses 27 through 33, her cities are destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah. Her debris can't even be used for rebuilding. Chapter 51, verses 25 through 26, her cities will be flooded with her enemies, verses 13 through 14. Babylon will fall. The winnowers will come, verses 1 through 5 in our chapter. The golden cup will be broken, verses 6 through 10. The meads will serve as the instruments of destruction, verses 11 through 14. God alone rules the world, verses 15 through 19. The hammer of God will come down upon the city, verses 20 through 23. God will destroy the destroyers, verses 24 through 26. And Babylon will become like a threshing floor, verses 27 through 33. So let's look at the winnowers. Verse 1. Thus says the Lord. Behold, I will raise up against Babylon. Against those who dwell in Leb, Kamei. A destroying wind and I will send winnowers to Babylon who shall winnow her and empty her land for in the day of doom they shall be against her all around against her. Let the archer bend his bow and let lift himself up against her in his armor. Do not spare her young men utterly destroy her harmony army. Thus the slain shall fall in the land of the Chaldeans. Those thrust through her streets for Israel is not forsaken, nor Judah, by his God, the Lord of hosts, though her land was filled with sin against the Holy One of Israel. Again, look at verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up against Babylon, against those who dwell in Leb, Kamei, a destroying wind. Now remember, why will the winnowers come? And what, what's a winnower? A winnower in the ancient world were people who would throw grain up in the air in order to separate the wheat from the chaff. And so the idea is the winnower separates the fruit from the husk, the chaff from the grain, that which is nourishing 
against that which is not nourishing. And so why do they come? The Lord sends a destroyer against Babylon. The big reason. There's lots of reasons why Babylon is going to be judged. But if I were to put one reason on top of all of the other reasons, because God has not forsaken Judah and Israel, whom Babylon has sinned against. Now, remember, most of Jeremiah was spent in a laundry list of the of the sins that that that. The children of Judah and Israel and most notably of Jerusalem had committed. But in spite of all of that, in spite of all of that, God, in order to discipline Jerusalem and Judah, in order to take her into captivity so that she would be fully, finally, irrevocably, unequivocally, forever purged of the problem of idolatry. God is going to rescue her. Now, again, let me just state the obvious. Why is this important to you? Because in spite of your sin, in spite of my sin, even as we sang in our worship service, that God has rescued us, that the distance that we have put between ourselves and God has created a mechanism, not so much where we had to get closer to God, but God had to get closer to us and to rescue us. So when you read the expression in the very first verse against those who dwell in Leb, Kamei, most Bible scholars have seen this as a kind of a, of a code word. It's not a physical location. It's another name for Chaldea and Babylon. It's a, it's a kind of a, a cipher, if you will. Um, a mystery word. Literally, the word meant the heart of one who rises against me. Behold, I'm against Babylon. Why? Because Babylon has to be judged because of her sin. God hasn't forsaken Israel. Why? Against those who dwell in Leb Kamei, a destroying wind. When it says literally the heart of the one who rises against me, Babylon isn't just simply a geographical location. It's a state of mind and a state of heart. It is the state of mind and the state of heart of the person who finds themselves in disobedience and rebellion against God. And so when you're in rebellion against God, it's an invitation to judgment. That's part of the point. And when it says a wind, a destroying wind, the last couple of days we've had a little bit of wind. Now, not that this has happened because it didn't happen, but imagine a wind comes through the front range and it blows down all of the political lawn ads. The wind comes and it blows out all of the candidate signs, all of the people who are running for office, all of the issues. The wind comes and it blows it all away. Till nothing is left. You can imagine that in your mind. Some of you even wish it would happen. Oh God, just, just make them stop. That's part of the point that's happening. The image, the figure of speech is a wind that comes and it separates the grain from the chaff. From the good from the bad. The right from the wrong. In the broadest possible terms, 
It means all those who dwell in the opposition of the sovereign God in more narrow terms. It means everyone who opposes, everyone who resists God, the plan of God, the purposes of God, the prophecies of God. That's what it means. There was a very famous existential philosopher named Albert Camus who hated God and rejected God and embraced atheism. Albert Camus wrote, the only way to deal with an unfree world is to become so absolutely free that your very existence is an act of rebellion. Unbelievers and make-believers love this quote. The only way to deal with an unfree world is to become so absolutely free that your very existence is an act of rebellion. And remember what he means by that. An unfree world is is not free because it's enslaved. It's enslaved by political thinking and social thinking and cultural thinking. But for Camus, it was mostly religious thinking. That religious thinking restricted and, and prohibited the way he, that he wanted to act. This is the very kind of thing that God promises to judge. A heart of rebellion. A heart that is dead set against God. The verse can be translated the spirit of a destroyer. And by the way, the word ruach in the Hebrew can mean both wind and spirit. And then in verse 2 it says, And I will send winnowers to Babylon, who shall winnow her and empty her land, for in the day of doom they shall be against her all around. The winnowers, if I were to use a modern image that I think might be way more familiar to you, you're all probably familiar with the image of the grim reaper. The reaper is that dark figure with the, the sickle that comes and cuts down the grain. And so here, the judgment that God has against Babylon is going to cut them down. And so it says, and I will send winnowers to Babylon. Literally, the text could say strangers who will winnow her. Spoilers who will spoil, it says in the Septuagint. The words stranger and winnowers are almost identical in the Hebrew language. But so what does this mean? It means that the judgment isn't going to take place from the inside out. In other words, Babylon isn't going to be crushed under the weight of her own sinful corruption. Outsiders outsiders are going to come and level her to the ground. And so it says in verse 3, Against her let the archers bend his bow and lift himself up against her in his armor. Do not spare her young men. Utterly destroy her army. The verse either incites the attacker or warns the defender that they're going to fail. But the net result of the text is, guess what? Babylon is going to fall. The military machine that comes against it will be successful. In verse 4 it says, Thus the slain shall fall in the land of the Chaldeans, and those thrust through in her streets. The picture is of devastation and death. Now what's interesting is, there wasn't devastation and and, and death when Cyrus initially creeps into the city. And captures her by surprise. Of devastation and death come later with Alexander the Great. 
But by the time the fourth, the second century rolls around, Babylon is holding on for dear life. And by the time you get to the time of Jesus, it's just a little way station, if you will. In verse five, it says, for Israel is not forsaken, nor Judah by his God, the Lord of hosts, though her land was filled with sin against the Holy One of Israel. There there were those people who who thought that Judah's sin and Jerusalem's sin were so egregious, so bad, so un, and it was egregious and it was bad that God had given up. That God just simply said, I've had it with this people. Whatever plan and purpose that I used to have, the plan and purpose no longer exists. And sometimes you'll come to a place in your life where you'll feel exactly that same way. You'll feel, God's had it with me. God's disgusted with me. God's done with me. Are there times of rebellion and disobedience that we experience even as believers? The answer is yes. But the good news, God has a plan. God's made a promise. God has a purpose. Israel isn't forsaken. Judah isn't forsaken. Even though the land was filled with sin against the Holy One. By the way, look at verse 5 carefully. For Israel is not forsaken. In the Hebrew language, that word translated not forsaken is literally not widowed. The picture, the image is of a mate who's lost her spouse. There's no one to champion her. There's no one to defend her. There's no one to care for her. But it's not true, the Lord says. In other words, he reminds them of his presence and his covenant relationship. And so it it continues. The golden cup will be broken in verses 6 through 10. Look what it says. Flee from the midst of Babylon and everyone save his life. Do not cut her off in her iniquity. For this is the time of the Lord's vengeance. He shall recompense her. Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth drunk. The nations drank her wine. Therefore, the nations are deranged. Babylon, Babylon has suddenly fallen and been destroyed. Wail for her. Take balm for her pain. Perhaps she may be healed. We would have healed Babylon. But she's not healed. Forsake her and let us go, everyone to his own country, for her judgment reaches to heaven and is lifted up to the skies. The Lord has revealed our righteousness. Come and let us declare in Zion the work of the Lord our God. Remember that part of the point of this prophecy, it is a poetic declaration. And so when he says flee from the midst of Babylon, why? Because she is going to be judged. Flee from the midst of Babylon. Why? Because she's going to be utterly destroyed. Look what it says. And everyone save his life. Make a run for it. Do not be cut off in her iniquity. In other words, if you remain in Babylon, you yourself will experience the same judgment that Babylon must of necessity experience. What does this mean in the broadest term? In the historical sense, it means that Babylon is going to be destroyed and it's not a safe place to live. 
in a biblical and a spiritual sense, it means what the New Testament teaches. Do not love the world, neither the things that are in the world. What does that mean? The world stands in opposition to God. The things of God, the plans of God, the purposes of God, the gospel of God. For this is the time of the Lord's vengeance. He shall recompense her. Remember what the Bible says in the New Testament. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. And see, some people get really deeply disturbed that there is a God in heaven who actually keeps account. And even when you use that term vengeance, vengeance seems like a word that doesn't fit with the God of the Bible. But make no mistake about it. Vengeance is exactly what the text says in verse 6. He shall recompense her. In other words, recompense Babylon for her wickedness, for her evil, for her disobedience, for her rebellion. And then in verse 7, Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth drunk. The nations drank her wine. Therefore, the nations are deranged. The world and the world system is a tool in the Lord's hand to judge the nations. And so the Bible uses this imagery, the imagery of a cup. Now, Babylon was noted for its beautiful artwork. And remember, for them, the cup was a cup. It was a a cup of libation. This is the same imagery that is going to be used later on exactly in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 17, if you turn there real quick, it's easy to find because it's the last book in the Bible. In Revelation chapter 17, verse 4. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And then look at verse or chapter 18. Just go one chapter over and look at uh, verse four. And I heard and I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. When it says that Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth Drunk and the nations drank her wine. What has made the earth drunk? What do you suppose it is? What is this wine? Clearly, it's an image. And in the text, Babylon is the image. Babylon itself becomes the cup. So what has made the earth drunk? What is this kind of spiritual wine? What is the intoxicating substance that has made the nations deranged? Is it the rebellion? Yes. Is it the disobedience? Yes. Is it the persecution against the saints? Yes. Is it the economic system of oppression? Yes. Is it the religious system which stands in opposition to the true and living God of heaven? Yes. It's all of those things. Remember what I said that Babylon isn't just simply a geographical place that represents the pinnacle of human accomplishment. It becomes a picture of what humans hope for. 
life, love, happiness, apart from God, apart from the revelation of God, apart from forgiveness of sin, apart from hope in a Messiah. And that's made them intoxicated. That's the idea. Is it okay to live without God? For the vast majority of the world, it's a necessity. In order for the people to do what they do, they have to live their lives as if God isn't true or if God isn't real. Now, you might be thinking, well, there's lots of people who believe in God. You're exactly right. They believe in God. But I want you to think for just a moment about the God that they believe in. The God that they believe in that allows them to live their lives in selfishness and disobedient and rebellion. And look what it says in verse 8. Babylon has suddenly fallen and been destroyed. Wail for her. Take balm for her pain. Perhaps she may be healed. I want you to think about this. The poetry speaks of the reality of the physical destruction of the place called Babylon, but it looks to the future of a time when the world system will be destroyed. When the nations of this earth will come to grips with God's plan and purpose. So when it says Babylon has suddenly fallen and been destroyed, why would the Lord invite Babylon's captives and captors to wail for her? Those who have suffered idolatry, captivity, discipline, incarceration, abuse, those who have suffered are now encouraged to weep for their tormentor and to offer balm for her wounds. Why? Because the vast majority of the world has placed their hope in this world's economic system. And again, what is this world's economic system? The world's economic system is a system in which God doesn't participate in the commerce. It's, the, it's that way of thinking that the economic world and the spiritual world are divided. It's the mindset that says, okay, a lot of different people have their own religious views and we need to be tolerant of their religious views, even though the religious views are substantially disconnected from the God of the Bible and from the Messiah of the New Testament. <laughs> Look what it says in verse 9. We would have healed Babylon, but she is not healed. Forsake her and let us go everyone to his own country. For her judgment reaches to heaven and is lifted up to the skies. I want you to think about what you're reading right now. In verse 9 when it says, we would have healed Babylon. In what way? What is healed? what's, What's the idea? Sick. In other words, you extend the offer of wellness to something or someone that is sick. We would have healed Babylon. In what way? In the way in in which if you can begin to think about the economic system and the religious system and the social 
and the cultural system of this world. We invite the world, don't we? We invite the world to turn from their sin and to turn from their wickedness and to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. We invite them that the economic and the spiritual woes that the society is experiencing because they don't have a right relationship with God could be easily satisfied if a spiritual renewal takes place and people turn from their sin and we elect officials who honor God and believe the Bible. They do justly. We can begin to obey the scripture. He's shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. But to do justly and to love mercy and to walk in humility with your God. But the economic system and the spiritual system of the world says, we don't want that. That's not what we want. We don't want the Bible and we don't want Jesus and we don't want justice and we don't want righteousness and we don't want absolute truth. That's not what we want. Verse nine, forsake her and let us go everyone to his own country. In what sense? Here, the invitation is a physical Coming out of Babylon. But they can't leave. Because they're slaves. Because they're captives. And the people in the world can't leave the world. Because they're slaves. Because they're captive. They're not just simply enslaved to the world's way of thinking. They're not simply enslaved to the world's way of feeling. They're not simply enslaved by the cultural limitations that come when you live in a particular place at a particular time. But there is this supernatural enslavement that takes place as men and women's souls are in bondage to Satan and the demonic system of this world. And there's only one way to come out. There has to be a spiritual renewal. There has to be a spiritual change. There has to be not just a way of thinking differently. There has to be a fundamental spiritual shift that takes place because your sin is forgiven. And because you've experienced what it means to have a right relationship with God in Christ. Forsake her and let us go everyone to his own country for her judgment reaches to heaven and is lifted up to the skies. Verse 10, the Lord has revealed our righteousness. In what way? Since they're not righteous, the Lord has revealed our righteousness. But wait a minute, they're sinners, they're in rebellion, they're in disobedience. There's a reason why they were captive to begin with and disciplined because of their wickedness and their idolatry. So in what way has the Lord revealed our righteousness? You have to go all the way back (laughs) to verse 5 where it says, For Israel is not forsaken, nor Judah by his God, the Lord of hosts. For Israel has not been left a widow by Judah, by God, and by the Lord of hosts. I want you to think about this. In other words, the righteousness is a foreign righteousness. It isn't a righteousness that they have in and of themselves. It's because God has a plan and a purpose. And whatever right relationship they have, whatever right standing that they have, God is going to have to impart the rightness in order for them to fulfill the promises of God. In other words, if they're going to be free from Babylon... Babylon is going to have to be judged. And in order for you to be set free, 
Sin is going to have to be judged. And so sin is judged. Come and let us declare in Zion the work of the Lord our God. Do you understand what's hidden in that passage in plain view? Come and let us declare in Zion. Where is Zion? It's the holy mountain of God in Jerusalem. The work of the Lord our God. What what does it plainly say? It's plainly saying that the children of Israel and Judah and Jerusalem who are in captivity in Babylon are going to leave and they're going to declare the righteousness and the work of God. What God has done in the holy city you know what that means God's promise is going to come true this is the passage of scripture one of many passages of scripture that Daniel unrolls the scroll as he's reading the book of Jeremiah and he begins to sob and weep when he realizes that the promise of God has made it abundantly clear that the children of Judah and Jerusalem won't stay in Babylon forever And the same is true of you when you read the New Testament and you read passages of Scripture like John chapter 14 where Jesus says, I'm going to go and I'm going to prepare a place for you to receive you to myself so that where I am, you will be also. I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, even if he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me will will never die. I'm going to go. And I'm going to come back for you over and over again. There's New Testament promises that God makes. And as he makes the promises, he will make good on the promise. And then we see the slipping away of the instruments of judgment or of destruction. And so from verse 11 all the way to 33, it's judgment, retribution for the destruction of God's temple. And so beginning in verse 11, look what it says. Make the arrows bright. Gather the shields. The Lord has raised up the spirit of the kings of the Medes. For his plan is against Babylon to destroy it. Because it is the vengeance of the Lord, the vengeance for his temple. Set up the standard on the walls of Babylon. Make the guard strong. Set up the watchmen. Prepare the ambushes. For the Lord has both devised and done what he spoke against the inhabitants of Babylon. O you who dwell by many waters, abundant in treasures, your end has come. The measure of your covetousness, the Lord of hosts has sworn by himself. Surely I will fill you with men as with locusts and they shall lift up a shout against you when it says make the arrows bright the way that they would do that is they would polish their arrows before they went off to war in other words if you've ever seen ancient arrows they would take um, a piece of wood and then they would grind it against the rock to make it aerodynamic in other words you smooth it you make as smooth as possible you gather the shields the lord has raised up the spirit of the kings of the medes in other words the lord will use the medes as the instrument or the agent of his of his judgment when jeremiah is making this statement the medes and the persians are vassal states of babylon These are a part of the Babylonian Empire, but they're going to rebel against the Babylonian Empire. So Jeremiah predicts and the Lord predicts that he's going to use the Medes as the instrument or the agent of his judgment. So when he says raise up the spirit of the kings of the Medes, it means stir them up. Why? By the way, Cyrus will successfully take Babylon in 539 B.C. Now, remember, before that, in 550 B.C., 
He rebels against Babylon. He becomes the king of the Medes and the Persians. You can read about it in Esther chapter 1 verse 3. Daniel chapter 5 verse 28. And so the picture is the Lord himself stirring up within Cyrus a willingness to go knowing that he can't be defeated. It it isn't just arrogance or pride. There is this deep conviction that this is what he must do. And in verse 12, it says, set up the standard on the walls of Babylon. The walls are what you just saw. They would set up flags, make the guard strong, set up the watchmen, prepare the ambushes. In other words, if Babylon reinforces its defenses, if it reinforces its army, if it reinforces the intelligence community, if it reinforces and prepares militarily against every form of ambush, for the Lord has both devised and done what he spoke against the inhabitants of Babylon. No matter what Babylon does to prepare, they won't succeed. And all that the Medes do will succeed. Why is, again, this important? Because when God has a plan in place, and when he prophetically desires to bring something to pass, it must of necessity happen. And so in verse 13 it says, O you who dwell by many waters, abundant in treasures, your end has come, the measure of your covetousness. When it says, O you who dwell by many waters, Babylon had a sophisticated system of irrigation and water delivery. Remember, they're by a river that is constantly flowing and they would divert this river and they would make a series of irrigational ditches that literally brought Babylon to life. It was an unbelievable architectural and hydrological wonder. The army of the Medes puts an end to the spirit of covetousness. When it says abundant in treasures, remember, it is the treasures of the destruction of Jerusalem. The golden um, utensils that were in the temple of Solomon. The, t- the golden table, the Ark of the Covenant, all of the treasures that were inside of the, t- the temple. When Babylon went and sacked Egypt, when they, when they destroyed Assyria, when they encapsulated and consumed all of the kingdoms around them, they would take their treasures and they would put them in a national treasury in Babylon. Their wealth was indescribable. As a matter of fact, I've already told you that even by the time you get to Alexander the Great, when he captures the wealth, it is so enormous that he can't even haul it all away. So acting through his chosen vessel, the Lord cuts off, completely destroys the nation. Here's the idea. The army of the Medes puts an end to the spirit of covetousness. The measure of your covetousness, greed, the commercial wealth of Babylon. And in verse 14, it says, the Lord of hosts has sworn by himself. Surely I will fill you with men as with locusts. In other words, the city itself is going to be flooded with human beings and they will shout against you. So there are three facts that guarantee the victory of the Medes. Number one, in verse 14, the Lord of hosts has sworn by himself. Three things that guarantee the victory of the Medes. Number one, 
God has sworn an oath. Number two, the omnipotent or the unlimited power of the Lord who made the earth by his wisdom, who stretched out the heavens, the universe by his understanding in verse 15. The creative power of the Lord who established the laws of nature that make thunder possible and lightning possible and rain possible. And so the Lord makes establishes three facts. I swear this. I have unlimited power to do whatever I want to do. And I have the creative ability to make sure that it comes to pass. I keep asking you this question. Why does that matter to you? Because the moment that the Lord swears something. And the moment the Lord swears to do something by his own power. And when the Lord swears to do something by his own power and his own unlimited creative abilities, what should be your immediate response? This is going to happen, isn't it? Uh, Yeah. See, verse 15, he has made the earth by his power. It isn't just a confluence of events. It isn't just a big bang and the cooling of of stars and planets. This isn't just the coagulation of galaxies. It isn't just a big bang that has simply stretched out the heavens from one end of the known universe to the other. He has established the world by his wisdom. He stretched out the heavens by his understanding. This is the declaration of the Bible and the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible claims that he made the universe and everything in it. Even though human beings are reluctant to believe that. In verse 16, when he utters his voice, there is a multitude of waters in the heavens. Again, that's his creative power. When it says there's a multitude of waters in the heavens, he's saying... It's God who give, makes the hydrological process happen. Can you imagine you're in Babylon and all of a sudden gushes of water come from the atmosphere? Now, the Babylonians weren't idiots. They understood that if you threw a rock in the air, the rock came down. They could pour a, wa- a glass of water to the ground, but they couldn't pour water up to the sky. Where in the stinking world does that water come from? How do you begin to understand the hydrological processes? How do you understand thunder? How do you understand lightning? How do you understand rain? Where he utters his voice, there's a multitude of waters in the heavens. He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. Do you understand what you're reading? This is a description of the hydrological process. He's describing precipitation. The vapors ascend from the ends of the world. The hydrological process is the sun heats the ocean and the waters and it evaporates and it goes up in the air and then it cools and it it comes back to the earth. Can the Babylonian Empire do that? Can the Babylonian Empire make Rain, make thunder, make lightning. He makes lightnings for the rain. He brings the wind out of his treasuries. Even in our sophisticated day, people can get on and they can report the weather and they have a chance of being right and they have a chance of being wrong. But can you, has anyone ever said, I'm going to create The weather patterns of the future. The Lord says everyone is dull hearted without knowledge. Every metalsmith is put to shame by the carved image. 
For his molded image is falsehood, and there is no breath in them. When the Lord says everyone is dull-hearted, he's talking about everyone in Babylon without knowledge. He's talking about the people who create the idols, who melt the gold and the silver, who carve the wood, who make the image. And then they say, then they invite you to bow down to it and worship and say, this is Molech. This is Enlil. This is this God and that God. By all means, offer sacrifices to them. And there is no breath in them. It's the Lord's way of saying the idols aren't real. And so three reasons are given why God executes judgment on Babylon's idolaters. In verse 17, they prove they lack knowledge by worshiping that which is a fraud. And so the Lord says, if you are... Devoid of understanding. And you're willing to worship that which isn't real. Idols aren't real. Here's the big picture and the big idea. If it can be manufactured by a human being. It has no right to be worshipped. Oh, but it's a 67 GTO. (laughs) Don't you understand that this is a muscle car that defined a generation? It's a Porsche 911. It's a Harley Davidson. It's not metal. It's art. It's the expression of genius. The Lord says, if it can be manufactured by a human being, it doesn't have the right to be worshipped. So, big question to you. What is it that human beings typically worship? They usually are going to fall into two categories. Things made by human beings and things not made by human beings. So we automatically get to exclude everything that is manufactured by human beings. Does that even include imaginary things that human beings make up in their mind? Did human beings invent God? No. God isn't the invention of humanity. God, according to the Bible, reveals himself. And so in verse 18, it says, they are futile, a work of errors. In the time of their punishment, they shall perish. Idols are worthless and empty and useless and unable to help in time of need. Idols are doomed to perish when God's hand of judgment falls. And by the way, when Babylon is taken by the Medes and the Persians and the children of Israel are prepared to go home, they will never, ever Ever, 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 ever have a problem with idolatry. They're cured. They're cured. Now, he gives us another idea. If it can be destroyed, it's not worth worshiping. So, things that now don't deserve to be worshipped, fall into two categories. Number one, if it can be manufactured by a human being, not worthy of worship. Number two, if it can be destroyed, it's not worthy of worship. Question, will the sun be destroyed? 
Will the moon be destroyed? Will the stars be destroyed? Will the galaxy itself disintegrate at some point? Will the universe, this very real universe in which we live, will it cease to exist? The answer is yes. But look what it says in verse 19. The portion of Jacob is not like them. Not created by humans, not capable of being destroyed. The portion of Jacob isn't like them, for he is the maker of all things. And Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. And what is Jacob's portion? Do you know the answer? Jacob's portion is the promise that was made to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham. Jacob's portion is the promise made to Isaac. Jacob's portion is the promise made to Jacob. And the promise made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is that the portion is a real relationship with the true and the living God. A covenant relationship based on the promise of God that he himself would provide a sacrifice that would deal with the problem of sin and reconcile humanity back to God forever. Question. Can God's promise be destroyed? Can God's Messiah be destroyed? Can the gospel be destroyed? Can true friendship with God be destroyed? So the true and the living God has given a portion to Jacob. That portion isn't simply the land, and it isn't simply a promise. It's both. It is a land and a promise and a Messiah. The portion of Jacob is contrasted with the idols of Babylon. The God of Israel is the maker of all things, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. And so what is his portion? It is God himself. And what is the Christian's portion? It isn't just going to church and it isn't a Bible and it isn't just the promise of the forgiveness of sin and reconciliation to God. It is all of that and more. Your portion is friendship and relationship with Jesus forever and ever and ever and ever. Your portion is the promise of Jacob. Your portion is Christ. And so in verse 20, it says, you are my battle axe and weapons of war for with you, I will break break the nations in pieces. I will with you, I will destroy kingdoms. This is God's way of saying to the Medes and the Persians. You're my weapon of choice. Wow, Lord, you have lots of weapons to choose from. Yeah. You're my battle axe. So, again, don't use this as a proof text for your mother in law. That's not the meaning of the passage. Hey, look, Ma, you're my battle axe. No, that's not the meaning of the text. God makes the Medes and the Persians his battle axe and weapon of war. 
King Cyrus will shatter the nations and the kingdoms, including the armies in verse 21, including the citizens of Babylon, the men, the women, the children, the elderly in verse 22. Look what it says. With you I will break in pieces the horses and its rider. In other words, Babylon's ability to mount an effective army. With you I will break in pieces the chariot and its rider. This is the heavy artillery. It's a, refre- a, a, a reference to the destruction of the armies. And in verse 22, with you also I will break in pieces, shatter man and woman. With you I will break in pieces old and young. With you I will break in pieces the young man and the maiden. With you I will also break in pieces the shepherd and the flock. With you I will break in pieces the farmer and the yoke of oxen. With you I will break in pieces governors and rulers. You have to understand what it is you're reading. This is a description of the total collapse of the agricultural industry, the political infrastructure, all of humanity. Nine times the Lord uses the phrase shatter, break, devastate. The picture is one of absolute ruin. In the past, The empire of Babylon. In the future, the mental and spiritual, and I'm going to suggest to you, the financial and the physical collapse of all man-made governments, armies, infrastructure. So what's the big prophetic idea here? In the end, everything, 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 all earthly powers are tools in the hand of God. And if you want more on that, it's Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5. And I will repay Babylon and all the inhabitants of Chaldea for all the evil they have done in Zion in your sight, says the Lord. Again, we lose sight of the, of the hope and the comfort and the purpose of, of the writing. Now, again, think of verse 24. And I will repay Babylon and all the inhabitants of Chaldea for all of the evil that they have done in Zion in your sight, says the Lord. Here's the idea. My family was killed in Judah and Jerusalem. My farm was savaged. Everything that I had, everything that I knew, everything that I understood, gone taken to a place of captivity, taken to a place of incarceration, taken to a place of forced servitude, taken to the land of idolatry. And they read verse 24. And they begin to understand something. That all of the loss, all of the pain, all of the emptiness, all of the slavery... The captivity, one day, one day, it's going to come to an end. God assures the vengeance on Babylon between verses 25 and 32. Behold, I'm against you, O destroying mountain, who destroys all the earth, says the Lord. And I will stretch out my hand against you, roll you down from the rocks, and make you a burnt mountain. So look at verse 25. Why is Babylon called a destroying mountain? Because Babylon is on top of the world. Babylon is the head of gold in in Daniel's vision. 
Babylon becomes the epitome of human culture, human language, human religion, human this, human science, human technology. I don't have time to get into it, but at some point I'm going to go down the laundry list of everything that had its origin in Babylon that we have even to this day. I know some of you are looking at your watches. Do you know why there's 60 minutes in an hour? Because of the Babylonian system of accounting for time. Perched high on the top of the nations. God declares that he's going to strike it with his fist. And he's going to knock it down from its position of world domination. And that when he brings his hand against the city, it's going to become a crushing ruin. In verse 26, they shall not take from you a stone for a corner nor a stone from the foundation. But you shall be desolate forever, says the Lord. I'm going to suggest to you that there's a sense in which this physically has happened in the destruction of the ancient city of Babylon. And it becomes a few future picture of the reality of the future that all man-made economy, government, and religion face. God declares he's going to utterly destroy Babylon. He's not going to leave one stone on top of another. It will be destroyed forever. And so the picture becomes God will ultimately destroy everything that human beings have ever manufactured. In verse 27, set up a banner in the land, blow the trumpet among the nations, prepare the nations against her, call the kingdoms against her, Ararat, Mini, Ashkenaz, appoint a general against her, cause the horses to come up against the bristling locusts. The Lord mobilizes the nations. Here's the idea. He's taking the Medes and the Persians, but this coalition force, he summons the kings of Ararat, Mini and Ashkenaz. All three are geographical regions in what is eastern Turkey and Armenia. Ararat, of course, is known in Bible history as the place where Noah's Ark landed. Akkadian, Uratu, mountainous country north of Assyria in what is now Armenia. Mini, I don't know what the meaning is of that word, and I don't think anybody does. Some think that this is where Armenia gets its name. Har is a word mountain. Harmenia, hence the geographical name, Armenia. Ashkenaz, its meaning is unknown. He was the oldest son of Gomer in Genesis chapter 10. He's mentioned in 1 Chronicles 1.6. It appears that this is associated with a tribe or a geographical region. The area is really unknown. But some Bible scholars think that it was somewhere in eastern Turkey or Armenia because that's where the other groups were. The name was later applied to Jewish people living in middle and eastern Europe. The Jews were broadly divided into two groups, the Ashkenazim and the Sephardim. The Sephardim were from Spain and Portugal and um, the Latin states, if you will. The the expression appointed general or a marshal, the Akkadian, is a word that is related to the Hebrew. It means a tablet writer. And in Nahum chapter 3, verse 17, it's also related to locusts. I am going to suggest to you that it is in historical a reference to the human beings who literally invade the Mesopotamian region. 
But I also believe that it might be a hint of a prophetic event that mentions future destruction in the Middle East. And I'll talk more about that when we get to the wars leading up to the end. In verse 28, prepare against her nations with the kings of the Medes, the governors, the rulers, the land of his dominion. The Lord announces and declares his intentions in verses 29 through 32. His plans will stand. It is unchangeable. The land of Babylon. There's three words that come to mind. Devastated, uninhabitable, unlivable. So if something's going to be devastated, uninhabitable, unlivable. Let me just give you a quick illustration. Imagine that you could buy a piece of the desert for $100 an acre. And you might be thinking, well, even though it's a desert, I think with the rocks and the minerals and all of the rights, maybe it would be a good idea. And then I told you, they're going to explode a nuclear weapon on this area so that it will be uninhabitable for a thousand years. Would you want to buy the property? That's a big no. Yeah, okay. Doesn't make sense to purchase land in an area that is unlivable, uninhabitable, and devastated. Verse 29, and the land will tremble in sorrow for every purpose of the Lord will be performed against Babylon to make the land of Babylon a desolation without inhabitant. The mighty men of Babylon have ceased fighting. They have remained in their stronghold. Their might has failed. They became like women again. Sorry, ladies. They have burned her dwelling places. The bars of her gate are broken. One rumor will run to meet one runner will run to meet another one messenger to meet another to show the king of Babylon that his city is taken on all sides. In other words, they don't have Twitter. They don't have YouTube. They don't have email accounts. So the long walls that you saw at the beginning, they're running to 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 remind the people that they're about to face destruction The passages are blocked. The reeds have burned with fire. The men of war are terrified. When it says the passages are blocked, attackers in the ancient world would often burn the reeds and the swamp grass where the tender dry was during the campaign season. In other words, this is a picture that all of the places where you would normally be able to hide... You won't be able to hide. The passages are blocked. The reeds have been burned. The picture, of course, is, well, surely in the day of destruction, we can go to Idaho, right? We can buy guns, gold, and groceries, and we can live off the land. God says, when Babylon is ultimately judged, no place to hide. The crossings are seized. The marshes are set on fire. The soldiers are terrified. The army panics. And by the way, the river crossing seized. The marshes set on fire. Terrified soldiers. Army panics. Do you realize that that was exactly what we saw in the first Gulf War? And I'm going to suggest to you that it becomes a picture of what happened when the ancient Babylon was destroyed and when in the future Babylon will be destroyed again 
For thus says the Lord of hosts in verse 33, the God of Israel, the daughter of Babylon is like a threshing floor when it is time to thresh her yet a little while and the time of her harvest will come. Let me help you understand what you're reading. The daughter of Babylon is the offspring of Babylon. The daughter of Babylon is the child of Babylon. The daughter of Babylon is all of the systems that embrace the thinking, the living, the the philosophical, the economic, and the spiritual religion of Babylon. And when it says it's compared to a threshing floor, I come from New Orleans. And in New Orleans, when you live there, you have a pretty good view of what the city looks like because it's on a plane. In other words, the, 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 the buildings come up out of the valley of the Mississippi Valley. And remember, it's just a little bit under sea level. If you look at Denver, you can picture the skyline in your mind. If you look at Los Angeles, you can picture the skyline in your mind. If you look at New York, you can picture the skyline in your mind. And if you lived in 612 B.C., you could picture... The ziggurat, you could picture the walls, you could picture the the splendor, the edifice. This is the largest human city on the planet in all of its glory, and it's leveled. It is leveled. It it is destroyed. The, The skylight completely disappears. The jagged skyline disappears, and then it becomes a pile of ruins. Ancient Babylon was breathtaking in its beauty, in its architecture. And then it becomes worthless. And that's the picture that God gives of a world that he's about to to judge. Picture the skyline in Los Angeles, in San Francisco, in Seattle. Picture the skyline... In New York, picture the skyline in Miami, gone. Picture the skyline in London and Paris, in Rome. Picture the skyline in Tokyo. Picture the skyline in Rio de Janeiro, leveled, gone. And so it says, for thus says the Lord God, the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. And at the end then it says, and the time of her harvest will come. The trampling becomes a picture of judgment. When the fullness comes to a shocking, dramatic conclusion. The rest of the chapter, next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an image, what a picture that we have. The unfolding in the past becomes a picture of the not too distant future. That the daughter of Babylon will be leveled. When it is time to thresh her, 
yet a little while. When the fullness of the cup takes place and the sum and the substance of all of the wickedness and all of the error and all of the rebellion and all of the disobedience will come to a full and final and a dramatic conclusion. Lord, we know that this world system must be judged. And so again, Lord, we pray that in our hearts that would not be the location of rebellion. But Lord, our heart would become a sanctuary of cooperation with your Holy Spirit. That Lord, it would be our desire to love you. And that our portion forever would be Jacob's portion. In Jesus' name. Amen.